Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, I was at this uh, Natural Products Expo at the Anaheim Convention Center this weekend. And it was great because me and Joanne got so much free stuff like water and energy bars and just you name it. But I saw this guy dressed like a big ginseng. And people are sort of mocking him. And I have to tell you something. This is no lie. When, years ago, when I lived in L.A., I did a marketing job. And I was called a brand ambassador. It was for an organic company called Walnut Acres. And what we did was we had a big greenhouse and we would give soup out and the soup would go for like $4 a bottle. And it was before organic was big. And we'd go to like the third street promenade in Santa Monica. We'd go to, you know, um, the farmer's markets all over. And we basically got paid for an eight hour day, but our day was over when we gave out all our soup. So basically, besides giving out soup, we took a lot of soup and we'd trade and bargain with people. But I had to dress like a piece of corn. And now that may sound embarrassing and people sure judged me, but the thing is I was getting paid $37.50 an hour to dress like a piece of corn. I would have taken that because that would have been an $80,000 a year job with no, I had no stress. I gave out soup and I was, I sit there and I get the paycheck and I go, holy crap, I'm getting paid all this money for corn. So next time you see like a big mattress or someone dressed like something, don't mock them because they might be making a shitload more money than you. Anyway, we have a great show today. As I told him before we came on air, I've, I've been on like a Chicago run. You know, like every, every week there's been a bunch of Chicago people, which I hate to admit it, I've never been to Chicago and growing up in the Philadelphia area. A lot of people like Adam McKay and Rick Roma, they all moved to Chicago. I've never been there, but we have uh, Joel Murray. How you doing, Joel? Hey, I'm here to get the soup, actually. See, I wish I still had I was the in soup. in the neighborhood, yeah. It was, it was great. It was, a, it was $4 bottles, and I mean, thirty seven fifty an hour to dress like a piece of corn is just sick. And I don't think of soup as coming in a bottle, so that's, uh, that's kind of interesting to begin with. That's it's a that, thin soup. That's why they're not around anymore. Yeah, all right. So you're, you're from Chicago, and so did you, did you love growing up in the Midwest? I grew up in Wilmette, Illinois. It's a, the greatest place to grow up and leave. Um, Wilmette is, you know, people think of it as an affluent suburb, but I was the youngest of nine, and my mom was a widow, so, uh, you know, I was, I was spoiled. I got all the really good hand-me-downs. But, uh, you know, I always say we grew up caddying for the kids from Winneka, so we, uh, we weren't that affluent. Uh, what is it growing up like? Because I grew up my neighborhood, and I grew up with a family of three. And back then, I mean, I grew up, we're just around the same age. And we had one family, they had 11. It was a cool hands. And there was nine boys, and then they had two girls. And I always felt bad for anyone who dated those girls, because their nine brothers were going to kick your ass if you treated them wrong. What was it like having, and you were the youngest, right, you said? Yeah, number nine. So what was that like? I mean, just it must have been a bedlam in the house. It was pretty crazy. And, uh, you know, I was probably in the crib till I was about four or five until there was room for me to actually get a bed. Um, and my oldest brother joined the Air Force at the height of Vietnam, and my sister joined the convent and is still a Dominican nun. And my brother Brian went out to college in California, and he was gone. But uh, there, there was a, an exodus. You wanted to get out of this fabulous house we grew up in, uh, apparently, when I started crying <laughs> in life. But uh, it was it was a lot of fun, and I our dining our dining room table growing up. My father was a diabetic and a very slow eater, and um, you know the second half of the meal was always trying to make him laugh with food in his mouth. And uh, I, I think a lot of our family's comedy came from that. And you you learn a lot about comic timing when you're trying to get you know a word in edgewise or trying not to say something stupid so you'll be shut out of the rest of the dinner. But uh, 
it, it was a great place to grow up. Yeah, it must have been, when I think of it, I mean, you know, and your brother's Bill, and then you have John, and you have uh, Brian, and so you, I mean, you, all these good comic minds, I mean, what was it, I mean, for you, it must have been like an uphill battle, because, I mean, as kids, I mean, in the, you know, even when you, my, my older brother always tell me to shut up, and my mom would say, stop interrupting him, and he's like, what he says, you know, isn't important anyway. What was it like you trying to get, I mean, was it hard for you to break into the uh, the circuit? Well, you had to learn to listen, and, you know, you you see only children that talk and they think that everything they say is something that should be heard well you, you learn at a very early age in a family of nine that not everything you have to say is worth listening to so uh, you learn a little bit about timing and holding back and uh, listening and adding on to something that that is indeed funny as compared to just you know spouting off your every thought uh, but you know I, I did grow up around some of the funniest people in the world arguably and uh it uh, it was a nice little training ground in that matter. What gravitated you guys, do you think, to being funny? Was it just, I mean, did you watch a lot of TV or did you do skits? I mean, everyone has certain things. Like, I was a young kid, you know, I watched, you know, Woody Allen. We, you know, we stayed up and watched The Tonight Show. But was there certain things that your family would watch or were your parents, would they encourage you to be funny or act or whatever? No, there wasn't really any encouragement in that direction. And um, I, I think the fear of working with my father at the lumber yard was, uh, you know, the fear you didn't want to do that and uh there are actually references in caddyshack about the lumber yard right okay i didn't know that yeah because that's uh, uh my brother brian wrote it and um i think you know how did you all become actors well lack of direction i guess would be uh what was with us but uh my brother brian was a peanut broker and uh, then he started taking classes he told me the other day 46 and a half years ago with harold ramus he took his first uh players workshop class at second city and uh you know, he uh, got involved and was on the main stage in the new wave of the Second City at that point with uh, Harold and a, and a whole new group of people that actually swore on stage and didn't wear suits and stuff like that. And uh, and my brother Bill, you know, used to hang around and watch. And uh, after a while, the siblings drank for free at the Second City. So after a while of him drinking at the bar for free night after night, they said, you know, maybe you should get into a class or... <laughs> When they put him in the touring company, and uh, he got involved. But I came through, you know, a dozen years later, um, and I, I got into it. Um, my good friend Dave Pasquazzi and I had a little bit of an interest in it, and uh, we went and uh, we found Del Close, the uh, the improv guru, and, and started taking classes, and uh, it all kind of took off from there. But well, I read on it. You played. You're the high school captain of the football team. Is that is that true? I was capping the football team, leading the musical. I don't know too many guys that can say that. Now that's amazing because most people you don't hear back and forth. I mean, it's like what was that like? Because I mean, it was. It reminds me of when uh, the Brady Bunch, when Deacon Jones was the uh, the songbird. And you're like, well, you can't be in the choir. Uh, the choir and Deacon Jones is like, I sing. It's sort of like that. It must have been like because you're the captain of the football team. Well, I, uh, you know, I had played football. You know, it's early season. Uh, freshman year and I was trying out for baseball and it was a two-day tryout and uh, the second day I'm you know tightening up my cleats and I, I'm looking over and it was an all-boys Catholic school and I was like wait what are all those girls doing over there and the guy said oh they're uh, they're trying out for the spring musical well I'll see you guys later and I, I didn't try out the second day of baseball <laughs> and I, I tried out for the play and I got a little part and uh, that was it um, but I had done plays as a little kid too um, it was just, I was a good singer. I was in the choir. The Monsignor made me stay in the choir until the seventh grade, and I went to Rome and sang for the Pope. And uh, wow. So I always had a good voice. So now here I got to go try out for this play uh, 
later, this is a couple years later, uh, to try out for the lead for Damn Yankees, Joe Hardy. And um, Father Reuter, uh, there was one kid, Steve Hildebrand, who was, you know, he had been in all the plays and uh, wildly flamboyant uh, character. And um, he was, you know, nobody was auditioning against Joe Hardy. And I came in and uh, told Father Reuter I was going to, try out for the lead and he was just in shock like oh my god somebody's going up against steve (laughs) and meanwhile all the football players which were doing spring workouts came into the little theater and they're all you know tightening up their shoes and they're eyeing girls and whatnot and i had to audition in front of my football team that i was just the captain of uh in the fall and uh i figured if i could you know get through that baptism of fire I, i could pull it off and uh i got the part that's cool though. It's weird. I mean, it must be hard, you know, because football. It's like that's your comrades, and you're sitting there, and you know they want to bust your balls. I mean, you know they just want to sit there and they want to see you screw up, just so they can. First of all, some of them probably are like, oh, I should have been the captain. You know, they're like yeah. they have that like that block on their shoulder. It must have been really interesting. But you, you got up and you kicked it. But yeah, after the audition, I had you know a, a crowd screaming and cheering for me, so uh, I, I had some some followers, early followers. Now, did you go to college? I went to uh, college. I went to Northern Illinois for a couple of years, and I, I, I couldn't handle being out in the cornfields anymore, and I, I kind of begged my brother to get me out of there, and um, I paid my way most of it uh, at Northern, and uh, he called me up out of the blue, Bill this is, and uh, said, so what are you doing about this whole Rome thing? And I go, nah, the, the Rome Center, Loyola University, and uh, I said, well, you know, I'm I'm about twenty grand short. I uh, I haven't done anything about it because I had told him that some of my friends were going there, and apparently this is something he had always wanted to have done. What is the uh, Rome Center? It's Loyola University has a year abroad at uh, you know the Rome Center, and it, it's the best thing in the world. I mean, it's three girls for every one guy, and you're in a little <laughs> embassy of your own on the top of Monte Mario, the highest hill overlooking Rome, and there's a bar in the basement that's open till one in the morning. I mean, it was it was like I thought it up. Um, so anyway, he says, well, read this book, uh, Innocence Abroad, and call this priest, Monsignor Meter, and, and call me back. And I, I read the book like in a day and a half, and I called him back. And uh, yeah, call this other priest, Father Jared Wicks. He's a, he's a distant cousin of yours. He's actually going to be teaching there. And uh, read this other book and call me back. And I did it, and I, I called him back, and he said, yeah, the money's in your account. So uh, I, I went to the orientation with uh, cash in hand to go to school in Rome, and uh, it was pretty much the best year of my life yeah, that must i mean when you think about it i mean i went to a four-year college and we had like one and a half guys every girl and most of the girls were chubby because in new jersey in the winter yeah you put the weight on that must i mean you're you how you're what 20 21 at the time exactly and you're going to rome and you're just this great place i mean did you must have just gone nuts oh yeah and you know i was uh on the plane i met dave pasquese who's a kind of an improv god in chicago and uh does a show called TJ and Dave is one of the best improv shows I've ever seen. But um, we met each other on the plane and sat up and drank the entire flight. And literally the stewardess said to us at one point, no, you can't have another beer because there's no more beer on the plane. <laughs> um, so we got there and, and it turned out we were roommates and uh, Pasquese had grown up building swimming pools with an Italian crew. So he was actually fluent in Italian and uh, I was kind of his Harpo Marx and we, 
I, I think I went to 16 countries when I was there. I, I'd go to class on Wednesday. I'd go away for the weekend on Thursday, and I'd come back on Monday and, and sleep Tuesday and then go to class on Wednesday again. What were you guys supposed to study? I mean, was, it, was it a certain curriculum you went through, or did everyone just say, they're going, they're going to travel, they're going to get drunk, they're going to get late? That's, what, that's all they're saying. We don't care, but I mean, what was the curriculum? Well, there was a full curriculum. It was the same as Loyola Chicago. Okay. You could take uh, numerous courses, but uh, there wasn't a lot of... Uh, you know, I was uh, communications, radio, TV, film, and so I switched to English. And so, yeah, people say, well, what did you study in Italy? English. Um, but, you know, <laughs> you, you had a lot of time on trains, you know, going places. So, you, you know, you, it was pretty cool reading the Odyssey when you're on a train traveling through Europe and stuff like that, or Yugoslavia, and you're reading these books. It, it was a, a good time to... Yeah, and especially at that age. I mean, it's such a, it's such a great age because we know everything, but we're so innocent. And it's like you sit there, you're like, yeah, I, I don't need my parents. But then you go, oh, shit, I need some money, mom. You know, it's like we, that's the well, mind frame. Yeah, and it was different then. I mean, you were out of money. You were out of money. You were weeks away from getting any, you you know, so you you learned a lot. Uh, it's it's not like today where you just you know deposit some money in your account here and it's you know immediately available on your credit card or whatever. Uh, so you, you you had to figure things out, and you, we had some money making schemes that we would come up with and things like that. But uh, and you know you you weren't connected. You know, you had to get jetonies, these special coins to make phone calls back to the States. And, God, who can afford those you right. know, when you could spend those on beer? Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, you were you were isolated and uh, a million miles away. I, I've never been so lonely as Christmas Eve uh, by myself, basically. Uh, that, would, that would suck because you come from a big family. Yeah. I noticed that. I, I, that happened to me when I... Uh, when I first got divorced and I was sitting and I, I had this little studio in Burbank and mm -hmm. I'm sitting there and I'm going, God, you know, I, I went, I went with my buddy to this bar that was open and we had a few beers and I'm like, God, you know, why did I get divorced? I said, you know, Christmas was always so great. My friends were like, well, you know, would you rather be miserable one day a year or 364? And I said, <laughs> yeah, I think I'll think I'll take Christmas. But it's weird. People don't understand when you grow up with a family, when you grow up with Christmas is something. When you spend Christmas by yourself, especially because you're so far away, you're nearly, it's a, it's a, it's a lonely-ass feeling. Right, right. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there in, in a room by myself listening to Neil Young's Oh, Lonesome Me. And uh, <laughs> I could hear... Uh, Pasquese was in the bedroom above me with his girlfriend's room and you could hear like banging upstairs <laughs> and here I'm just kind of teary-eyed listening to Neil Young. So you come back. Now when do you plan to move to Chicago to start hitting the second city stage? Well I came back from Rome and I went to Loyola Chicago then. So okay. I was going to school downtown and um, I was working at a video rental place on, on North Avenue by not necessarily by accident, because I used to be able to go over and watch the improv set at Second City after uh, I, I was done working. And then one Christmas, Joyce Sloan, who was the matriarch of Second City, the woman who you know was the mother to us all, um, just sent somebody over, like some you know intern or something, came over to the video rental place and said, "Yeah, Joyce wants you to come to the Christmas party. It's uh, tomorrow night." And uh, I remember going to the Second City Christmas party and watching her, you know, give out gifts to everybody and give out the Christmas bonuses and hanging out with all these great, really funny people. And uh, I think I was there until 3, 4 in the morning. And uh, I, I kind of got the bug then. Like, this is this is kind of the flashing arrows you should probably follow, pal. Now, when you were doing, when you started there, was there pressure on you? Sort of like when a baseball player comes in, like, you know, like the Canseco brothers, like the one brother, you know, has to live up to Jose. Was there pressure because, you know, your brothers were, both had gone through there and were very 
very are amazingly talented. Was there some pressure on you, or did some people think like, uh, you know, let's, let's see this this guy's not going to because these two guys are too good. I mean, did, did you feel something, and maybe or also some people like just resented you a little bit, even though they didn't know you, maybe resented you for the fact because you were married and they thought maybe you would get something because of that. Yeah, there was there was some of that um, that that I was going to get breaks for you know without doing any work, but we did the work. You know, we there, there's a story where Pasquazi and I. Uh, took our first class with Del Close and we had just done this like little cable show in Fort Wayne, Indiana with these girls we had met who we lied to and said, oh yeah, we do sketch comedy. Oh yeah, we write and perform our own stuff all the time. We don't. Uh, so we went to Fort Wayne and we did the show and it was kind of fun. And uh, so then we heard about this Del Close class and we, we show up at this thing and he's talking slow comedy and not going for the laughs. And we got up and they gave us a suggestion of a hangover and, um, we did this scene that we had actually performed before. Uh, it was, you know, loosely scripted, but we did this really slow scene with two guys waking up after a party and finding this girl's purse and trying to piece the evening back together. And it was really slow and really funny. And uh, afterwards, Del, uh, he gave me a scholarship uh, to take classes with him. He says, you know, your brother's been very good with me, and he actually helped me out a couple times when I needed it. And... Uh, yeah, I want to give you a scholarship, but you know, I like that Pasquazi quite a bit. Um, I'll tell you what, I'll give you both a half scholarship. So I, I went from a, a full scholarship to a, <laughs> a half, and uh, then we started our own group. Uh, we were the Barons Barracudas, and we had a show at a bar called, uh, it was called Gas Bars now, and now it's Shubas. But it, it, so we had a, a room that we would perform in, and uh, some people from the Second City came one night, and there was about 80 people in the house that night for some odd reason. And uh, they said, who, the, who are these guys that get 80 guys? So they, they basically hired all the guys in our company, but at that exact same moment, I got cast in One Crazy Summer, this movie I did. I, you know, that, that's one of those movies, I'm, and you know, that's one of those movies you just like. I mean, it's so different, and that's when Bobcat's Goldthwait was just so, like, Bizarre. I mean, now yeah. he's changed, but it was one of those things. And Cusack, and it was just—I don't know—was was, was that a Savage Steve Holland? Yeah. Production? And he was a done, you know. And if people don't know, Savage Steve Holland just made these crazy ass movies. I think he did uh, uh, Better Off Dead. Yeah, which were just so mm -hmm. different. And you know, I'm I'm not sure which movie it was, but they had the cheeseburger playing to Everybody Wants Some by Van Halen, yeah. <laughs> and he was so cutting edge and just. That, that you don't see that kind of stuff anymore. And back then, I, I'm thinking, I don't know how some of this stuff got made because Hollywood must have been like, what the hell is this guy doing? But they became classics. Yeah, and, and I, I meet guys in their 30s. That seems to be the, the, the you know, the, the swing, uh, what do you call that, in the wheelhouse of those guys. But without fail, you know, I, I see somebody who's like 33 years old and like, yeah, yeah, I was in one crazy summer. That's it, yeah. <laughs> well, how did you do audition for it when you were in Chicago? Or how did you come apart about getting the role? I auditioned for it in Chicago, and then the callback, of all things, was in uh, Hyannisport. Okay. And uh, I was like, what is that? Wow. And I had never auditioned for anything in my life before. And uh, maybe how did, you, how, did you, how did you feel when you first auditioned? Did you think it went good? Were you nervous? Or were you just like, what the hell? Or you just said, well, I do improv. I can do this. I was too dumb to be nervous. And, uh, you know, I memorized the lines, and I, I did it. And um, so I got to go to the callback now, and I'm at the airport. And um, so... In, I'm waiting in the line. I've just gotten my first class ticket to Hyannisport. So they flew you. They, that, yeah. That must be amazing. Even yeah. if you don't get the part, you're going, I've won. Well, I've never flown first class, so I've already <laughs> won. And uh, I get on the plane, or I'm getting to, ready to get on the plane, and uh, Jeremy Piven is there. 
and with his father, Baron Piven, the fabulous actor from Chicago, and um, he has no ID. And so Bern Piven's, you know, this is 1985 or whatever. Oh, I'm Bern Piven. This is my son, Jeremy. Of course, you, you, you'll believe me. <laughs> and uh, so they had to kind of talk their way on to, you know, this first class ticket. And uh, I got on the plane with him and um, he's, you know, he's got his chest shaved because he had just done some, you know, uh, football movie that he was just in. And he's been in all kinds of stuff. And he really is Cusack's best friend. And we're going to audition for Cusack's best friend. And uh, so I'm sitting next to him on the plane and I've got the paper out and I'm reading the horoscope and I'm like laughing. He's like, what? Well, it's just my horoscope. You know, it's just everything's coming up roses and things couldn't be better. This is the start of a whole thing. And I'm like, oh, what are you? Well, I'm a, I don't know, Taurus. Oh, well, don't let setbacks hurt you too much. And I just made up this thing and it just kind of got in his head, uh, <laughs> just made this horrible horoscope for him and he just mm. but um i got the part and uh so now i'm in hyannis and the movie's starting and um so 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 you get you go there they i go there with a, a weekend and, and you, don't, you don't have the ticket back they're saying okay you start tomorrow yeah no i got a bag and i'm there for <laughs> you know the night kind of thing and I, I stayed for two and a half months or something like that and it was a riot, and Bobcat and I were good friends, and I was hanging out with Kim Foster, who was the gorgeous blonde in the movie, and she didn't know anybody else. And she and I were the only ones kind of our age that were actually able to drink. Bobcat quit drinking already. Demi Moore was AA already, or whatever. She wasn't drinking. Um, and uh, Cusack and Piven, Piven got the part as the bad guy's best friend. They weren't even old enough to drink, so... So all of a sudden, here I am with tons of per diem, and I'm hanging out with this the most beautiful girl I've ever met. And uh, like, yeah, this is pretty good. Yeah, this this acting thing that's gonna that's gonna be nice. Were you nervous at all because mm. you're in a movie? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing though it was probably it was probably so fun because everyone was the same age, and and it's one of those things where you know. And the and director, just, I mean, I was 23. The director was 25. Okay, so you're sitting there, you're going, and you must have been in heaven because you must be thinking, okay, I'm getting paid for this. I, I hang out with beautiful women. I drink with it. You spend the per diem. I'm in Helena's part, and. I'm in a damn movie, and this is your first audition. I mean, you must have been like, holy crap, this is, I'm on top of the world. This is, yeah, this is how it happens, I guess. This is how it's going to be the rest of my life. It's, this, it was amazing. And, uh, you know, and, and getting to hang out with Bobcat, the, one of the first days I met Bob, uh, he was making rockets. He was making, like, big Estes rockets and shooting them off and shooting them down the hallways and stuff. And I'm like, this guy's a hoot. And we walked into Cusack's room, and Cusack had, like, the good room. He was the star of the movie, you know, and he had a loft and a car and everything. Did, did they put you up in hotels or did you have yeah, apartments? We're, we're in this hotel for the whole duration. So uh, Bobcat sees that Cusack's got an American Express card on the on the counter, and he's in the bathroom. We're waiting for him, and he writes down Cusack's credit card number. And so for the run of the show, he kept ordering, you know, like, KTEL records and exercise things <laughs> and sending them to Cusack every day. And, uh, you know, we'd get done shooting and we'd come back and we'd walk in the hotel lobby and, like, Mr. Cusack, a package for you. And uh, he'd give you a look like, ah, yes, exactly. That's what happens. I get gifts and things and you guys don't. And uh, we would just laugh our ass off. Uh, <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, you hear so much stuff. That's just great, though. So you you go you have that movie now. As soon as that movie comes out, and, and it, it was seen, people watched it. Did you start getting recognized? It was and was that weird for you? It was you know a movie called One Crazy Summer. They released it on like August fifteenth. Uh, somebody wasn't thinking on that one, and uh, 
No, I, I didn't get recognized. And I, I came back, and immediately I had an audition for Saturday Night Live off of this thing. And um, I went in, and I had a couple characters I did in our, our show back in Chicago. And I went in and read for Frank and, and Davis and Lauren Michaels. And uh, I basically was kind of like, yeah, I've never done anything. I just did this thing and uh, improv, and you know, I want to work at the Second City. But seriously, if I could be on your show in two weeks... I don't think I want to be on your show then because, I mean, the, the great success you had were these people that had come up through the Second City and the Lampoon together, you know. You think you're just going to take it and throw people together now? And uh, I, I I never got another audition because I kind of was saying, no, I think you're doing it all wrong. And that was the weird cast with, like, Joan Cusack and Robert Downey Jr. and Anthony Andy Michael Hall. Hall. Anthony yeah, Michael. It, was, it was a very, because you, it's funny you say because the other classes were so meshed. And you're right, that was sort of a, a thing. But it's good you said that because also you probably weren't ready either. No, I definitely wasn't ready to be on live television. <laughs> you know, So then I go back to Chicago and all my buddies have been hired by the Second City now. And they're all in the touring company. And and my my improv group, all these guys are gone. Who were some of the buddies in the in, in touring group when you uh, were there? Well, that was like Chris Barnes, J.J. Jones, uh, Pasquese. Um, you know, that was those guys basically. But they they all got hired in mass, and um, so now what am I going to do? And I got a call from Joyce Sloan saying, "No, no, no, you're you're in. Uh, no, no, you, you all were taken. You're, and uh, they had gone through the." audition process and uh i didn't have to go through the audition process so you talk about people having a problem with me there's to this day people still pissed off that i didn't have to audition for the second city and you know what's funny it, it wasn't because of your name it was because that they saw the promise in you but people and you know how people are in the entertainment business they right. always bitch about it and it's so funny like on facebook people bitch but oh you know i always see it with comics you know they're bitching about oh well they need more female comics. They need more of this comic. And I'm like, hey, this isn't easy. You know, any place you go, they need more female pilots. But you don't see my friends who are, I have a friend who's a pilot. He's like, and if, if I have a, if I had a daughter, he said, I would tell her, train to be a pilot, you'll get a job like that. But mm -hmm. you don't see people, and people bitching, especially because of your name, they're probably like, oh no, no, I'm, I'm much funnier. And you know how it is. And you, and my, you must have felt a brunt of that. Oh, sure. Yeah, they say, you know, how many actors does it take to change a light bulb? You know, 26. One to climb the ladder and change the light bulb, and twenty-five to say I should be up there. Right. <laughs> and uh, you know, so it was always that way, and uh, it, it was an interesting, you know, process to the whole Second City and moving up through the ranks and things like that. And so there all there was always people being chosen and, and scorned and, and shunned, and you know, so it, it, it's good training for the real world in that aspect. But uh, yeah, I, I had some people that weren't happy with me. I've heard the touring company when you tour is just a blast because you're all these you're you're spending this quality time on stage together and you're all pretty much of the same focus and you all know each other and I just heard it's just one of the most fun times and I've heard it from a few guests who have toured and they just said it's it's a it's amazing. It was the best time ever, you know. And I worked with Bonnie Hunt and the touring company and you know various people that were just a lot of fun and you know you you were missionaries of mirth back then. There weren't all the cable channels, so you were. You were getting on a plane, you were going someplace, renting a 15-passenger van, and the, the 10 of you would travel around for like a week or two, and you'd go and do, you know, one night would be a, a acoustically perfect Frank Lloyd Wright-built theater, and the next night would be an old vaudeville house, and the next night would be a cafeteria at a, at a you know, major university. So you never knew what you were going to do, what you were going to play. And uh, you learned so much, and you did all these old classic Second City scenes, and you had to learn 
you know, how to do those word for word and make them funny. And there was always people that were changing words. And it's like, no, see, that's not really the assignment. The assignment is to try to figure out what, how to make this work. And, you know, the first scene I ever got on paper was there was no laughs in it at all. I was like, what the hell? Is this some kind of sick joke that they're, they're playing on me here? But it was a therapy group scene that ended up being one of my favorite scenes to ever perform but on, upon first reading i thought it, i was seriously being punked that this is just come on really how did you bring the funny out in it did you just sit there and go okay i can read it like this or was it a long process it was you no know, it took a couple shows to just realize no it, it it's about pacing and it's about taking your time and not just saying the lines and reacting and looking around at the other people in the thing and you know it was a weird it was a therapy group where a guy only had one uh, person at like a YMCA okay and he's having a therapy class and the third guy runs in he's looking for towels for the swim class and no come on in come on in no we just started great great and so it's a therapy session with two guys and a teacher who's you know just doing it all by rote as you know it it ended up and you had to do blind trust exercises and I had to pick up the heaviest guy in the company and stuff like that but it ended up being a, a hoot to perform but Upon verse viewing. That's funny. Horrible. It happens like that. So you cut your, you're, you're out there, you're on the touring company. Now, then do you go back to Chicago? After your tour is done, did you go back to the main stage in Chicago? Well, you got to, when you're in the touring company, you got to perform Monday nights on the main stage. Okay. So that was always cool uh, to be in the big house. And uh, then you, you know, you were on, you were off, uh, and you, you were just above subsistence level pay-wise so uh you know you were doing it and you still had to do other stuff and try to audition for commercials and things like that and uh to uh make your nut but uh it, it was it was the best and our touring company for some reason we seemed to get the best gigs you know the other group would go to northern iowa and we'd go to aspen you know they they'd go to uh south dakota and we'd go to new mexico okay. you know and we 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 seemed to get all the good gigs over and over again so we we really had fun and when we had a guy who actually was kind of auditioning to be the new booking agent so he would set up these phenomenal deals in condos and stuff like that and meanwhile the other group is you know <laughs> in, in ohio it. in a yeah. snowstorm at a motel <laughs> six and uh so yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. So you're in Chicago, and now a lot of people I've had on from Chicago said they know there's a time for them to leave to go to L.A. They just there's something happens. They go, okay, we have to leave. Did was something happen to you, or did you just said I can't do any more in the city? I want to move to L.A. Well, I was on the main stage with you know Chris Farley and Timmy Meadows and Joe Liss and Pasquazi again and Holly Wartell and Judy Scott, and we were doing great shows and we were having a lot of fun. And um, they were casting a sitcom in L.A. and um, called grand that i was on in 89 and uh i basically got hired off the stage one night but somebody had come and saw me and uh, bonnie hunt had suggested maybe i'd be good for this millionaire's idiot son and uh i went out and auditioned for it and got it and so i i did the pilot came back got married moved my wife my new wife to uh la in fact, I was on a plane. I was sitting next to a woman who was taking a Cosmo stress test, and I had lost a, a, a parent. I had gotten engaged. I had gotten married. I had gotten pregnant. I had uh, changed cities. I would lost a job, gotten a new job. I had everything on the list except for starting menopause uh, <laughs> out of the Cosmo stress test. And I, here I'm like, okay, this is, yeah, there might be need for marijuana right now. But uh, I, I, uh, I got through it all. So, so you come to L.A. and you have a series. Yeah. And now, that must be different, too, because 
your only other pretty much film work, right, was this movie where you're on the beach and you're with all these young kids and now you're coming in to Hollywood and it's much more structured. I mean, I know the shooting and everything. What was that like for you to get into that? I mean, it seems like I, I've, you know, your brother's on... Uh, um, Solomon, Solomon and yeah, and I've had Roy Wood Jr. and I'm friends with the warm-up guy, and I went to a taping, and it's much more structured than a movie because you have to sit there and you have to deliver, and it seems like long days. Well, what was that like for you? Because it's obviously now it's like this long day, and you're used to live performing, but when you do the improv, I mean, it's like when I did stand-up, you go, most of it's traveling, you do your show, and that's it. But for you, what was it like? Well, the sitcom is is like you do a little play in front of an audience every week, and uh, it's not as hard as like the single camera sitcoms they do now. But you rehearse, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then you, you block it for the cameras on Thursday and pre-shoot a little bit on Thursday, and then you do it live in front of an audience on Friday. And um, because I didn't have that huge a part, um, I had a lot of downtime, you know. So my wife's having babies, and I'm up in the middle of the night with her and making her tea and getting her a glass of water, and I'm up with the baby when the baby wakes up. Because I could get three, four hours of sleep at work, no problem. Okay. <laughs> That's, that's a, always convenient. I had a dressing room and a couch. So, no, that uh, that's the best gig in the world. I, I had a bunch of sitcoms, and I, I, I'll never, never be the least bit disgruntled on one of those gigs because I, I love doing that. But, um, you know, that little bit of theater is, is you get the rush from the crowd, and, you know, you, you get a couple takes, maybe only two. But you know if that line didn't work the first time through, I've always got something in my head that, you know, I've got a line to throw out that's going to work the second time. And I've, I've been working on it all week kind of thing. So uh, the improv would come in there. But uh, I, I was never happier than than working on, like, Dharma and Greg I was on for five years. That was the best gig in the world. I was five blocks from my house. See, that's awesome. Well, you know what's funny about Dharma and Greg, and I've noticed this, Thomas Gibson, that guy has, like, worked, like, continuously forever. Like, if people... I mean, it's not, people never say, oh, wow, Thomas Gibson. But the guys in Chicago Hope, then Dahmer and Greg, and now Criminal Minds, the guy has put an amazing body of work together, and he's solid. He was fun. I mean, he's solid in whatever he does. And it's always funny when people, like, if I said to someone who's not, doesn't watch our TV, hey, do you know who Thomas Gibson is? They wouldn't know, but the guys had this solid thing of work. And it must be, from going from Dahmer and Greg to such a serious, serious role now in Criminal Minds, yeah. what's he, what was he like in real life? I mean, he, got, he must have got to know him while doing five years. Oh, we're good friends still. And uh, we play golf a lot. And, you know, I used to joke that he was Johnny Juilliard. And, you know, if we talked about anything, oh, you know, I took a, a stage combatant class at Juilliard. And, uh, <laughs> no, I know exactly how to do this. And uh, But he is a very persnickety guy. He's, he's really always well-dressed and, and he's kind of not what I am uh, you know his stuff but you look sharp today you got the you got the golf you know I, I got, you, I'm you ready look, to golf yeah but that's a good look like well uh, I'll go with that because uh, that's what I'll do but you know his golf thing would be really nice looking okay. black slacks with you know <laughs> black golf shoes and you know he, he would have a, a, a up collared kind of thing you know he but he's he's a really super guy, and I remember we were on the Dharma and Greg softball team, and I had played for the first like five six games, and Gibson's finally going to come. I'm like, now I got this guy in my bellywick. You know, I, I grew up playing softball. Are you first, good? Yeah, I used to be really good. I don't play anymore. I get nothing. You can't get injured more in any other sport, I don't think, than softball for some reason. I mean, you just always pull a hammy, run into first. It's, or, you're right. It's or, funny. You slide into second and break a wrist. You know, you never know. But. Uh, 
Gibson comes up, and I'm, I, I got a hit, and I'm on second base, and uh, Gibson comes up and hits a ball so freaking far over the center fielder's head that he was at home plate before the guy even got the ball. And I was like, oh, my God, is there anything this guy can't do? You know, he, he's... Uh, He's really good, though. Now, I, look through, I, look, I was looking at IMDb, and I see you've done a lot of voice work. Yeah. Now, how did you transition into that? I mean, you, you, you do both, but in, at, any, at a certain point did someone say, hey, we, we like your voice, you want to do your voice work? Or how did you parlay into that, that area? Well, when you're in the Second City, uh, and they have, you know, they do a lot of advertising out of Chicago, and there was a lot of comedic, you know, partner reads and stuff like that. So you'd go in and read for stuff in uh, Chicago frequently, and I, I remember... Um, I was going to read for this thing for Cheetos, and uh, I uh, went, and Danny Castellaneta was there, who's the voice of Homer Simpson, right. and uh, it came down to the two of us, and we went in for the final audition for Chester the Cheetah for Cheetos, and uh, I got the part, and I, you know, they kind of told me in the room, no, no, it's you, and I, I drove Danny Castellaneta home, because I, I remember I had my mom's car, and uh, I drove him home, and I, he kind of, yeah, yeah, so I guess you got that, huh? Well, I'm doing this thing on Tracy Ullman, so I'm I'm gonna go do that. And like, who would have thought that? You know, wow. I I was Chester the Cheetah for 11 years, but he's still Homer Simpson. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, do you like the voice work? I, everyone who does voice work says it's such an easy day. Like you just go in, especially Chester the Cheetah. Can you do the voice? Well, I'm a rhyming kitty in the heart of Hip City, till I see those Cheetos. Then my common ease surrender to my urge for the cheese that goes crunch. Anyway, yeah. It's not easy being cheesy. It was pretty damn easy. Yeah, I mean, and plus it's you get paid well. Yeah. Oh, it was great. And, and in fact, they had to like stop the commercial after, ten, you know, eleven years because it was just ridiculous. Because I was making so much for you know an hour's work a year uh, <laughs> that the you know, the ad exec was like, "Screw it, man! You know, you're making more in an hour than I am in a year doing this thing now." But. Uh, They've never had a good Chester since, by the way. I, well, I, the commercials now are just sort of weird. Like yeah. it's like he's sort of like a wise ass. Like you're just more like a jazz cat, and now it's just like, oh, you know, yeah. throw the things and like try. It. And he's like over the edge. I mean, it's yeah, just I don't know what the hell it is. Now. It's not good. He's been lost. He's, he's been lost for decades. Because you left. Yeah. Then she he went. I'm still here. So what are some of the other voices you've done? Um, for what shows? Well, I was. I don't know. I did a, a cartoon called Baby Blues. I was the voice of Beethoven in a Beethoven cartoon. I just did Monsters University. I, uh, I was uh, Don Carlton, mature student, a guy from uh, the UP, uh, Northern uh, Michigan there. But uh, th that was really fun. And, you know, when people people always say, you know, the thing with voiceovers, you could do it in your pajamas. You can just roll out of bed and do it. And like, I've never, ever seen anybody in pajamas, by the way. <laughs> but um, wor working for Pixar was really interesting uh, because you don't audition. They just call you up and they say, we want you to do this role. It's like the mafia calls, and you're going to do this for us. And once you're in, you're in, so you're going to do it. But um, they've got it down to an art where you go in and you've got a four-hour session. They work you to death. And I, I worked with this great director, Dan Scanlon, and he has a high-pitched voice, and he had imagined the character having a little bit higher-pitched voice than I do. So he would work you into this kind of frenzy, getting you up in that register, and then you'd start over again after you'd done most of the lines. And you'd start over again now that you've got this higher pitch. And then at the end of it, they do all the yelling and all the screaming and all the impacts, all the, uh, uh, you know, kind of things. 
And by the time you walk out of there, you can barely walk. You're so tired. Uh, they really take it out of you. But uh, it, it was really a great experience. It must be amazing, though, because as you said, you did the Cheetos and you did like the cartoons. Then you go to this. And, and it, as you said, it's a huge. I mean, these Pixar movies make an outrageous amount of money. I mean, it's, I mean, Monsters You, and they get all these people. Now, and I haven't seen the movie. Does, does the character sort of look like you? Because most of the times they look somewhat like the person. Oh, no, this guy, he kind of looks a, a little bit like my brother Brian, actually. He had a mustache, uh, and he had flippers and tentacles, and, you know, they were all monsters. So he was kind of a big purplish, pinkish, uh, fat monster with a, with a uh, walrus mustache. But uh, no, it didn't look like me. But they do actually record you while you're doing it. And th there were moments where you could see that my mouth would go a little sideways and like, oh, yeah, they're, uh, they're, they're putting a little of my facial expression into it as well. See, that's so cool. It's, it's, so I want to talk to you also now. You've, you've done a lot of comedy. You know, it's been your backbone. But then you're on Mad Men. And uh, I love Mad Men. And I liked your character. He was, he was great. I mean, it was just, he was very sympathetic. He was just a nice guy. Like, I always laugh about Mad Men because if you break it down, Don Draper's just a jerk. He cheats on his women. He's a womanizer, but yet you like him, and yeah. it's just so funny. Your character is just a, a nice. Freddie Robinson's a nice guy. What was that set like? Because it was that show gets so much hype, and it's it's a, it's a great show. I mean, from wardrobe to everything. How did that role come about? Because you always did comedy, and then now it's like this like this number one drama, like it, as in drama wise. Well, it's funny because I had seen two episodes of it before I auditioned for it and my wife and I had watched them and were like I love this show and I got an audition for it now and I, I went in to read for it and I see this guy who's kind of in charge and he looks like this friend of mine Mike Bonifer that I used to write with and I'm like oh my god Bonifer's in charge of the show oh this is great and so I, I for some reason was a little calm because I thought well there he is and then I got done, and he stands up to give me some notes. And Mike Bonifer's like six three, six four, and Matt Weiner's like five eleven, okay. if five nine for that matter. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're not Bonifer at all. And uh, so he gave me the notes, and I, I did it. And so the next thing you know, you're on the set of the show that you love, and you're doing a scene with Elizabeth Moss. And I'm, I'm literally doing this basket full of kisses scene, the first scene I was in with her, and I, I I'm just staring at her, going. Wow, she's really good. Wow, she's a lot prettier in person, too. Man, she's good. Shit, I got a line coming up. I hope I remember it. And, uh, you know. So she's just an amazing actress? The, the lines, yeah, the lines came, but uh, I, I was in awe, just kind of like that I was there and working with her, and uh, it was kind of an out of body experience. But, um, and working with Slattery and Ham are absolutely phenomenal and really funny and the most, like, man's man type of guys to hang out with they're they're, they're such such good guys uh and the amazing thing about Mad Men is you know it looks like this fabulous motion picture every week you know they they shoot a, an episode in like eight eight maybe ten days uh on a tough one but um it's it's like anything else where you know you rehearse it in front of the cameras and then you get a couple takes and you're done and um it's it's a testament to the actors and the writing that, and you you treat it like Shakespeare. You don't change a word in that one. It's you know coming from an improv background. It's like no 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 no. You say this. That's a there's a comma there. You're missing. Like oh okay, um, but f the fact that it looks as great as it does is uh, you know, the crew and the actors and the writing is like. Oh, 
amazing to me. That it's so stylistic. It just mm-hmm. does. It, you're right. It's just, it's very, you look at it and it's very easy on the eyes. You sit there and go, wow. And that's one of the things it just, and the pace and it just, it is, it's one of those shows. I mean, you know, Breaking Bad, I love, but Breaking Bad was gritty. This is a, you watch it and you go, all right, man, you can yeah. chill back and just watch it. Well, when Breaking Bad first came out, it aired right after Mad Men. So you'd watch Mad Men that looks like this 60s motion picture and then Breaking Bad looked like it was on a handy cam. I mean, it was shot on a, right. it looked horrible. So I had to actually wait a while and, and watch those on, on tape because I couldn't watch them back to back because I was like, this looks like crap. Right. Now, now you were a Mad Men fan. Now, when you got the part, was it, on the, was it supposed to be a bunch of episodes or did they say it's going to be recurring or because you're on for a bunch of episodes yeah everything is so secret on that show you have no clue what's going on only the like the lead characters know that they're going to be around and even some of those people were killed off and things like that so no I've always been in the dark and you know I uh, they sent me away to rehab and you know they kind of like well you're not done and I came back uh, in season four then and did a few episodes in the beginning. I thought, well, this is great. We're going to have this parallel where I'm AA and, you know, Ham is now a horrible drunk. And I had two episodes right away, and then I didn't come back till the final episode of the season. And then, you know, I came back for one to tell Peggy, you know, maybe you should quit your job and try the waters kind of thing. And, you know, and then there's... The final season coming up, April 13th, uh, you can find out if uh, everything comes back. Everything's ending now, and it's really pissing me off. It's like, Breaking Bad's done. My girlfriend loves Psych. I don't know, it's, yeah. it's a fun show. That's done. Um, Boardwalk Empire's the last season. It's like, I'm thinking, you know, yeah, one, maybe I'm watching too much TV, but then two, I'm going, these are all such great shows that there's going to be such a void because it seems like no one takes a chance anymore except the cable networks to put on these great shows. Right. Yeah, it's amazing that the cable networks have, have made a name for themselves, but they got to keep recreating. They got to come up with new stuff, and uh, I'm I'm more than willing to, yeah. to be in those things. Uh, I just started watching House of Cards. I hadn't seen that. Everyone raves about it. I have to watch it, but it's like once again, you sit there and go, you know, if you start watching it, you're going to watch at least three or four episodes because yeah. you get I that three addiction. Last night. Yeah, you sit there and go. This is what I always do. It's like, okay, I have to, I have to get up early tomorrow. Uh, and I go, ah, oh, you know, it's like when you're drinking when you're younger. Oh, yeah, I'll get to work. You know, if I, uh, you know, it's only, you only live once, four more hours, four hours sleep, three. And you sit there and my girlfriend will be upstairs and she'll hear me on the Netflix downstairs and she'll be like, don't fall asleep with the TV on, but you just, you, you, it, it sucks you in, yeah. I mean, and it's awful. It's worse than an addiction. I mean, you're like, I got to watch, oh my God, I can't leave on this note. I got to watch one more. Well, the, the cable networks are letting artists be artists. You know, they're, they're letting these writers and the producers and actors do the shows where the, the reason the networks are such crap is they've got all these, you know, pencil pushers that have to, you know, piss in the soup, as they say. Like, they got to throw in their two cents. It's like, that's not what you do. Go add a column of numbers, you right. know, go over there. And, uh, it's it's a shame that the networks can't put out better product. And because there is some why. great TV right now. You're right. But it's almost all on cable. True. Now, with Mad Men, because you said you were a fan, now when you watch the... Now you still watch it. Do you feel like... Is it, is it weird watching yourself on the screen? Because you know what's going to happen in your scene, but you probably don't know what's going to happen in the rest of the show. Do you sit there? Is it? Do you feel like sort of awkward? I mean, you still want to watch the show, but then you're like, crap, I'm, I'm in a bunch of these. i got to watch myself. Well, it's both. Um, you know, you're kind of a civilian because you've been kept in the dark about the episodes that you don't know what's happening. So uh, there's that interest in there, and you're you're surprised, and you know you don't know what's going to happen to this character and kind of thing. And um, even when you know you're doing scenes 
that you're in, they only give you the information you need to know that's per- pertinent to your scene. So uh, they really do a great job at keeping you in the dark and not uh, not letting on anything. And they, you know, Matt Weiner gives a speech before every table read that you know this is it's top secret. You can't tell people. People love the show. Don't ruin it for anybody. And uh, people are real good about that. So yeah, it, it, it's fun to to watch it and I, I'm not one of those people that hates watching themselves I think you know anybody that says they don't watch themselves is an idiot you know how are you going to learn anything right you know <laughs> now, what, how, but, how do uh, your kids react when they see you on TV is it is something like because it's like it's like wait a second you know there's dad but wait there's dad I mean it's like it must be I mean they're probably older now but when they were young it must be it must have been odd well, my kids, you know, kind of grew up around a lot of people, and we have so many Second City Chicago friends out here in California, and we had a lot of barbecues and stuff like that. And so my kids, you know, like, there's Farley, there's Keckner, okay. and, you know, they, they knew these people, and almost to the point where they'll be at a party, they're looking at people going, who's that guy? He's, he's not in anything, is he? Like, <laughs> no, he's an actor. He does stuff. I've never seen him in anything. You know, so they, they're a little bit jaded in that way. Uh, but, I mean, like some things, you know, you don't want them necessarily watching when you, you commit suicide or something like that. But uh, they end up seeing it. And uh, they're, they're just kind of like, yeah, Dad, Dad was working for a change. Right. <laughs> At least he wasn't hanging around the house watching me. Now you're in Shameless, too. Yeah. Which is also a uh, another. I mean, honestly, I, I watched the first season, and I should catch up because everyone says it's great. And you work great. Just watch cast. the first season again. That's uh, that's what yeah. I do. No, <laughs> no, no what, that's that because that's once again it's sort of a drama. I mean, how did you gravitate from these comedies to very? I mean, Shameless is a fun, you know, right. aspect, but it's still it's it's not like hey, a feel good show. It's it's got the drama. It's heavy hitting. Did you did you? Were you excited when you get to do you get when you get to play these dramatic roles when, or not, or not, instead of like a comedy? Yeah, no, I, uh, you know, you try to reinvent yourself, and you know, you try to keep working is generally the rule, um, and and so much work now is is going to, for no reason, to Australians and Brits. You know, you work on things literally where there's a guy teaching a guy. I worked on a show where a Rastafarian guy would teach a guy from Wales how to speak with a Chicago accent. And I'd be sitting there going, really? Why didn't they hire a guy from Chicago? Uh, Why do you think that is? But I don't know. I think, you know, they've, the industry has found how to screw the actor. They found so many ways now how to screw the middle class actor that now they're like, now if we get people from foreign countries, we can screw them even more. So I, I think there's like been an edict put down that like, no, let's hire all these guys because they'll, they'll they have no rights. But um, I don't know. Anyway, back to that. Uh, Shameless was such a hoot in the fact that I, uh, what an unrewarding character, the Eddie Jackson, the guy I played, you know, the divorced wife. You've got another guy screwing his wife, living upstairs. He's living in the basement. His daughter's a tramp. And, um, you know, he spouts off and calls, you know, says whores don't get cars one night. Now his daughter hates him and is, you know, he end up, ends up killing himself. <clears throat> and the daughter ends up peeing on his grave. That's kind of the end of Eddie Jackson. Like, <laughs> what a wonderful arc I had. But uh, what a what a fun part. And, you know, we, we shot the exteriors here in Burbank, and then we would go to Chicago and get to shoot there. And uh, that was a blast to go home with. Is that her. like a homecoming sort of when you go there? It's like, wow, I'm coming back to where you started. I mean, did you, yeah. back when you were doing the Second City, it must be a really cool feeling. 
And, and you'd want to be able to say, you know, no, I know a place. I know a great place for dinner. And, you know, you, you go to your place one night, but the next night it's like Emmy Rossum has talked to her publicist and the fact that we're going to rocket will, you know, receive bottle service and free food and this and that because Emmy Rossum is showing up. It's like, oh, well, that's kind of the other end of the spectrum. I was going <laughs> to show you a neat dive bar. Uh, anyway, okay. But um, <clears throat> I, that was really fun. Uh, we went back for the blizzard in February a couple of years ago, and that was uh, just a hoot to be in Chicago in a blizzard. It's so funny, you know, living out here, you forget about the snow. And my girlfriend just moved out here, but for a year and a half, I was going back and forth back east where I grew up. And you just forget, man. It's like shit just shuts down. And, you know, you forget how to put gloves on, and you forget that you can't. You're you're like, you have issues when you have gloves, when you haven't put them. Like, I'm walking back from the supermarket, and I'm like trying to put the gloves on. I'm, I'm getting a phone call, and I'm dropping stuff because you forget. But as kids, we're so adept at it. It's like, gloves, okay, I can make a snowball in two seconds and hit yeah. someone in the head. Well, uh, I'm going back. Right now, I'm going back this weekend for St. Patrick's Day, and, uh, you know, they still got a foot of snow on the ground there, and they're talking about getting snow right now, and I'm supposed to be in a parade on Sunday. I'm like, eh, could you just turn up the thermostat a bit? Uh, <laughs> it's it's going to be a little rough, but, you know, again, great place to grow up and leave. Uh, I, I get back. My, my son went to Loyola, Chicago, and uh, we get back two, three times a year, and... <clears throat> You know, you can have uh, you can have December through March uh, generally, but uh, it's a great place to go the rest of the year. Are you are you a, are you a Cubs fan? Are you a baseball fan? Cub fan, Cub fan. I got to throw out the first pitch last year. What's that like? Like I, my friend, a friend I went to college with is the head soccer coach at Northwestern. Oh yeah, and he actually uh, just sent me a shirt because people send me shirts, and I was like, cool. Thank God I've been working out because it was like that Under Armour. If I wasn't, I'd be like, I look like a dope. But he put on YouTube on Facebook about him throwing the first pitch out, and I think that. It's, Besides Yankee Stadium, I mean, as an actor or as anyone, to throw a first pitch out, and I'm a Phillies fan, but there, I would much rather throw a first pitch out at, at Wrigley. I mean, then even when the vet was open, what is that like as being a baseball fan and just all of a sudden there's got to be pressure? It was really great, and I, you know, I coach baseball for okay. like 10, 12 years, and um, with my kids growing up, so I can throw. And um, the day I was going to do it, there was a huge thunderstorm, and uh, there was a three-and-a-half-hour rain delay before the game started. So, And I had all these friends from high school show up and college show up, and we all met up at Murphy's Bleachers. So for three hours, I'm hammering with all these buddies of mine and my wife and all these <laughs> girlfriends. And um, So by the time I got to throw it, I, I, I had probably you know close to a dozen beers in me. And, um, <laughs> and I brought it, and I threw a curveball on purpose and it it dipped and it dropped right in front of the plate and that's kind of like oh you did you bounce it i bounced it but you would have swung at it you know? right right it was exactly. a good pitch and it wasn't like mike wilbaum when he just yeah. like throws and the thing rolls no. you know and ron don the the guy he's a pitcher but he was the catcher for me he's like that's the best pitch we've seen this year man that was pretty nice and uh it was great and uh got to sing take me out to the ball game no did you is that a dual package or, or not always was that, a, was that the same game though not always but it was the same game yeah so well, that's pressure too because i mean you if you well luckily you have a good singing voice because you don't want to be like when ozzy osbourne yeah. sang everyone's like what the hell did he sing and he's a singer that's the scary thing yeah. but that must be uh that must be uh, that's a pressure packed day and you're getting hammered that was pretty cool and yeah now you've drank a couple more hours right <laughs> and then i was the mc for theo epstein's fundraiser that night at club metro across the street uh so they had all these 80s bands poi dog pondering and stuff playing so i had to do that after that so 
by the time I was completely done, I mean, I, I can't conceive how many beers I had had. By but that much, I, that's just, I mean, to throw the ball, I mean, when you're a sports fan, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just amazing. It'd be like me getting to try to kick a field goal at the Eagles game, but I'd probably pull a hamstring and fall on my ass. <laughs> now, you were, you're also in Two and a Half Men, but you played a few different roles in that, am I right? Or when you when you went on there, I've come back a couple of times. Chuck Lorre, you know, was the guy for Dharma and Greg too. So um, he's brought me in a couple of times. Like I need somebody to blow Charlie shit. Uh, yeah, and it's great. And working on that show is so good because it is the old crew from Dharma and Greg. So it's old home week, and everybody's really nice to me. And uh, the words there again are really good. So it's hard not to succeed. The last one I did, I was a, a Christmas tree salesman. And I did this scene and uh, for the run-through, and Charlie, I mean, with Ashton Kusher, and uh, Chuck Lorre comes up to me afterwards, and Ashton's there, and he goes, hey, Murray got a laugh on every line in that scene, and stares right at Kusher. Maybe we should have him do all the shows. And I was kind of like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, here I'm thinking that it went great, couldn't, you know. I, I went out that night, I figure my lines are not going to change because it went so well. I get the script the next morning. I'm looking at it, and my character is now a gay pot dealing Christmas tree salesman. He changed all my lines. He's like, "Well, if he made those working, you can." So I went in and had a whole new script to do that night, but uh, it went fine. And uh, the thing with that one, the residuals just keep coming. Yeah, it's on, it's on everywhere. So we just saw one the other night. You were you were in the uh, DMV with John Carr because yeah. it was like I said to my girlfriend, I said, "He's my guest next week," and and that's the thing. It's on so many networks, and I mean, so many stations. And you're yeah. like, people recognize me on the street more for two and a half men which I've done four or five episodes for than anything else in my career so we have a few minutes left what's coming up for you what do you got what do you got in the brew in the brew house or the wheelhouse I did a little movie called seven minutes a little indie and another little movie called blood sucking bastards a, a horror uh, comedy office comedy the, the seven minutes is with uh, Jason Ritter and uh, some other guys it, it's drama or is it comedy it's a it's a botched uh, bank heist kind of movie and uh, I, I get my face dismantled in that one that's nice uh, and then I travel around the country and Canada doing uh, uh, who's live anyway uh, whose line is it anyway live show with Ryan Stiles and Greg Proops and Jeff Davis and Bob Durkesh on the piano and uh, that's been an absolute hoot that's been it must be because you're you I mean you're you're getting back to your roots per se and yeah. and now because that show was such a hit, you know it's going to be a, a good crowd, and you know it's a crowd that they know what. Like sometimes people go, I don't know what improv is, you know. But this, they know exactly. They know. But it must you must have to really bring your A game every show because if you're not, the well, crowd, not only the crowd doesn't know, your actors, other actors don't know. Well, and those guys have been doing it together for 13 years. I'm the new guy, and you know, style starts every show out with a standing ovation. So. Uh, you go from there, but it's 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 been great, great fun and a godsend. You know, it's uh, easy money. How'd you fall into that? I've been friends with Ryan since you know, Second City, uh, L.A., uh, eighty nine, ninety, and uh, he just like Chip Eston, the guy. He's now on Nashville. He was the fourth guy, and uh, he's busy doing Nashville. So they needed a guy to fill in, and I was available. And uh, it's uh, it, it was just a stroke of luck, but Ryan. Just thought, oh, get Murray. You yeah. like? Do you like hitting the road? Yeah, I do. I do, and they like me because I drink and uh, I drink scotch and I smoke, and uh, th that's what they like to do too. What's your scotch of choice? Oh uh, well, Macallan eighteen is uh, usually, but uh, I, I'm an equal opportunity lender in that aspect. I'll drink them all. Any bourbon? Your bourbon or just straight up scotch? I I like bourbon. I like, I like Knob Creek. A lot of people, yeah. like, it's, it's a little bit sweeter. A lot of people like that. I don't I don't like Basil Hayden. A lot of people like Basil Hayden. I, I don't. I'm not a big fan. Mm-hmm. Well, 
That's uh, you're oh. a giver. That's good. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for coming on, and uh, it was a pleasure talking. You. you have a great body of work, and I didn't even know about the the touring. Which you know, how often do you guys go on tour for this? We do, you know, forty shows, fifty shows a year. Uh, you go out for the weekend, and you know, you again, you play a beautiful theater one night, and then uh, India casino that's inflatable the next night. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> you, you have no idea what the it's going to be, but it's it's really a, a good good bunch of fun. Are you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter, Joel Murray, nine of nine. Nine of nine? Joel Murray, nine of nine? Yeah. Okay, any website or anything? Or uh, No, that's about it. Right, well, follow him on Twitter. I want to thank you for coming oh. on. All right. And uh, people, uh, follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. Also, uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have about 235 episodes up. Send me an email, cooper at indie100, indie100.com. I'd love to hear what you're thinking. Um, iTunes, Stitcher, just type in one word, Cooper Talk. If you have an Android phone, go to the Google Play Store, type in Cooper Talk, and that's my app. And every Tuesday, I host crappy comedy at Jimmy's Place. I get a bunch of comics. We just have fun in a dark dive bar right here in Burbank on North San Fernando Road between Amherst and Grismer. It's actually fun. I have a really crappy sound system I bought, and every comic comes in. There's no attitude. We just screw around, and I get people that are cool. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget to drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. 